And Lord, as we open your word, we just ask that um, that you reveal your truths to our hearts um, and what you've been working on our hearts up until this point, um, that you would finish that work and um, so that we could receive your words and that it, roots would grow deep and that um, we would have good soil to hear what uh, what you have to say to us, um, knowing that you give them, for, give them to us because you love us, because you desire um, instruction, you desire correction, you desire um, obedience, and you love us, and we thank you for it. And so, um, Lord, we do desire to apply your word to our lives. Um, accomplish that in us this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm BJ, and um, I'm not normally the guy up here. And so it's a rare, it's a rare church. In fact, I've never been in a church where the senior pastor specifically asked the younger um, youth guy or associate, in my case, um, to actually get up here while he's still here. So um, Mike does that to support me. He does that to train me, and I appreciate it greatly because um, I need I need to learn, and you learn by doing. And um, I've been teaching the kids for years, but it's a different uh, ball game to speak to the the whole body, the whole church. And so um, I'm really excited to do this. I'm really excited to get up here more often. So thank you, Mike. <laughs> It occurred to me as I was uh, reading through this story that I have a bit of a uh, preconditioned mindset to stories I enjoy, and that is I'm a sucker for a redemption story. I love a good redemption story, um, partly because I think that's, that comes from the fact that um, I understand what God had to redeem in me, that I understand where my sin was, where I was at, the, the foot of the cross, completely, utterly depraved, without hope aside from Jesus' blood. So for me, that is the kind of story I love. I love a good redemption story, um, which, was, which is why it was hard to read this. For those of you who haven't been with us, um, we're in Daniel chapter 5, which you can start flipping there now. Um, but Daniel chapter 5, which if you know the story, this is the writing on the wall. Not a lot of redemption. <laughs> Not a lot of redemption in this story. Um, quite the opposite, in fact. And um, th- it's a harder story for me to read. It's a harder story for me to get excited about. But I have to remind myself that the words that we receive from God are there for a reason, and we must receive them, we must learn them, and then we must pass them on to our children, and then we must teach our children to pass it on to their children. This is a commandment from God, um, which, by the way, you can find in Deuteronomy 4, um, 9. I'll just read it to you. Uh, but watch out, be careful never to forget what you yourselves have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live, and be sure to pass them on to your children and grandchildren. God's word is complete. He wants us to read all of it. He wants us to understand all of it, and we can't get stuck on our favorite stories. Sometimes when we branch out, we find a little bit of correction and a little bit of um, strengthening where we needed it. Today we're going to see an example of a man who ignored ignored the example of his predecessor, which was Nebuchadnezzar. He ignored Nebuchadnezzar's um, life example, if you will, the fact that he was um, chilling with the goats, eating the grass. For more on that, you can read chapter 4, or just watch an emperor's new groove. <laughs> basically the same story. <laughs> it's like identical, basically. A um, little bit of plagiarism there. <laughs> 
But uh, anyways, Nebuchadnezzar, um, last thing we saw from him was he was praising God. He was praising God. He had been humbled. This experience was deeply humbling for him, and he was praising God. Um, and now in chapter 5, we're greeted with a whole new king, whole totally different guy. Um, his name is Belshazzar, and we have no explanation of how he got there in the scriptures. doesn't say how he got there. doesn't say um, who came before him. Um, but there are historical um, evidences from secular sources that we'll go over. He's going to have the same pride issue as Nebuchadnezzar had, the exact same pride issue. And it's going to be his downfall to the point where he is going to die because of his pride. He is going to die because of his pride. There will not be redemption. There will not be the opportunity to go out into the field and graze with the animals. And you say, opportunity? Well, it brought him back to the Lord. That's opportunity. Sounds brutal. It is brutal. I mean, I've never done it, but it's brutal. Like, I don't have to do it. I know it's brutal. But this is going to bring in the end of the Babylonian Empire. And in this story, we have a warning. And that warning was put there for the people of the time. And God's word is alive today as it was then, and it's put there for us now. Let's read the first few verses. In verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. So, good start. Under the influence of wine, gets better, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, could drink from them. <laughs> Sounds like an ancient frat party. Like, this is unbelievable. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, yes, that's wives, plural, and concubines, also plural, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They covered all their idols. Very thorough. This is incredibly irreverent. Incredibly Incredibly irreverent. Everything they brought from that was supposed to be in the temple, the house of God, house of worship, and they're pouring wine into it and they're getting drunk. There's a thousand of his nobles here. And what we know from history is that the Persians are sitting right outside the doorstep. Right outside the doorstep. It's very arrogant what he's doing. And he's not even the one who had victory over Jerusalem. He's got all this stuff out, and he's lording out the spoils that he didn't even earn. It was his predecessor. He did nothing to earn those. And the Medes and the Persians are right outside his gates, actively trying to get in. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus relates that the Persians conquered Babylon by diverting the flow of the Euphrates into a nearby swamp which lowered the level of the river so much so that then they were able to march right under the river gates, right into the most um, powerful stronghold you could imagine. Walls immensely thick. I didn't write down all the dimensions, but they're immensely thick. Gates immensely strong. It was impenetrable in, his, in Belshazzar's mind. And they had food, and, um, and they had the fresh supply of water. They were set to stay 
cooped up in their little place, nice and happy and safe, for a very long time. So he's feeling pretty arrogant at this point. But they diverted the flow of the Euphrates into a nearby swamp, came in under the uh, river gates, and you think about Belshazzar, what he's doing here. The man in charge of the city. Great responsibility. Very, very large responsibility. All these people in the city gates. His responsibility. On his shoulders, the fate of all the people. And he is drowning himself in comforts. He's drowning himself in comforts. When he should be alert and sober-minded. That's what he should be. He took on the role of authority. He took the power. He accepted that. He has this responsibility, and he should be alert and sober-minded. We as humans are very prone to this, this filling ourselves with comforts and pleasures. I know we know this, but I wouldn't feel the need to say it if it wasn't still a regular problem in our lives that tempts us. Drowning ourselves with comforts won't make anything better not one thing drowning ourselves in comforts will make nothing better and yet i can think of very specific specific times in my life my life when i wouldn't want anyone to have an open window into my home but now i'm pastor so let's open them windows (laughs) let's go I prayed over this message a ton last night, and um, I had this immense fear that I would have to give this message with my wife in the room, um, which I probably will in second service. She wasn't feeling too terribly well this morning. Um, maybe that's God's grace. I don't know. But, <laughs> but <laughs> what's been modeled for me in ministry that is effective is being open and honest Um, There's no pretense up here. I'm a human. I grew up. I fell on my face a lot. A lot. Ten years ago, I married the only girl I ever dated, which I praise God for that. I'm very grateful of that. Um, I'm not saying that's how everybody has to do it, but I was blessed immensely in that I don't have a whole bunch of exes out there. Um, We came from Christian families, both of us, both from Christian families, and we both love the Lord, and... I knew there was no way, no way on earth that our life was going to be anything but amazing, like awesome, so epic. The world was in front of me, and I was commander-in-chief. I was probably going to be famous or something someday, I imagine, (laughs) probably. Didn't really matter what for, because I was good at everything, you know. (laughs) Do anything I want. So I worked at a call center for the first year of marriage, (laughs) which, you know, they don't let anybody in there, so. (sighs) Still amazes me, still amazes me how much I could live in abject mediocrity and think so highly of myself. (laughs) Blows my mind, blows my mind. If only I had known that God didn't see me as mediocre. Only a few months after we got married, I started getting really nasty stomach cramps, like brutal stomach cramps to the point where I realized this is not, this is not um, going away. This is not just like I ate something bad. Like, this is continuous. I'm getting regular brutal stomach cramps, and, um, which worsened day by day. 
it got worse and worse, um, sharper and sharper. And at some point, I was finally forced to admit that I had a real issue. There was something going on. I needed to go to see a doctor. I needed to figure out what was happening in my body. Uh, I didn't like that because I didn't like looking weak. I didn't like um, having to admit that I wasn't going to be famous. The pain got to the point where I was actually stuck, racked, stiff on the couch to where I experienced something they call, um, I don't remember the term anymore, but it's a medical form of paralysis that is when your nerves are completely overwhelmed by how much they're firing. Um, And so Kami had to drag me uh, to a car and we zipped to an ER, and they checked me out. They didn't know what was going on. And it took three days for them to figure out I was in that state. Three days for them to figure out um, through MRIs, CTs. They did every test under the sun. They found cysts lining my intestine all around, one of which had connected to my bladder and was now pulling. And so the amount of pain that I had was um, so much that it put me into this almost paralytic state. Turns out I have what they call Crohn's disease, which is um, something that once you know how to take care of it, like now I feel great, I feel normal. Um, you would never expect anything. Most people would never expect anything. Um, but until you understand what you're dealing with, it's incredibly uh, debilitating. And for me, it was incredibly humbling. This is what the Lord did with this. We racked up more debt in one month than I had seen uh, in the more debt than I had seen in my whole life. Um, all in, uh, it was three days in the hospital and it was, it was more than I'd ever even imagined. Uh, I lost my job because I couldn't go to work and, um, I had to drop out of college cause I couldn't get to college. <laughs> so, um, so we had to move in with in-laws I'd move in with in-laws and I, I had to choose and we chose, uh, her parents. So I knew that was going to be uh, easier for her. It's an easier transition for her. And she was the one taking care of me. Kami was taking care of me and all this. So in that time, as I was faced with the fact that my life was actually that of a person who was medically broken, medically broken, not all that I dreamed of, I did exactly what Belshazzar did. I mean, I did exactly what Belshazzar, except for the, I didn't drink alcohol. Alcohol brutally hurts with Crohn's, so that's not, that was never a problem for me. I never got drunk, but, but I did exactly what he did in the heart. You see, because this story shows a piece of the human heart. What I did was I sat myself in front of a TV and I burned what should have been the best couple years of my marriage. Absolutely burned them. On comforts and pleasures in an attempt to drown both the physical and emotional pain that I was experiencing with the realization that not only was I not special, I wasn't even that cool. <laughs> I was broken. In the midst of all this, comforts and pleasures, um, and actually, let's just call them what they are, wood, hay, and stubble. This TV I sat in front of, this couch I sat on, you know, controllers I held, the remotes I held, wood, hay, stubble, all of it which will burn someday. My wife, Kami, was left completely alone, completely alone from start to finish in this whole period. Trying to figure out what Crohn's disease was. She thought I was going to die at some points. And I left her completely alone. I'd feel guilty every now and then because I could tell how immensely lonely and sad she was. 
And I'd try to watch something that I thought she would enjoy or try to entertain her for a bit, try to make things fun. It's not what she needed. It's not what she needed at all. Life's hard and she needed a partner to come alongside of her. Our spouses, men and women alike, need us to be who God called us to be. I don't need to be great at entertaining my wife. I need to be who God called me to be. And although I wasn't a drinker, I was anything but sober-minded in this time. Anything but sober-minded. In 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15, I'll put up on the board for you, it says this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace um, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In o- as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. If we have this knowledge, and we do, we have this knowledge. If we have this knowledge, we must not be conformed to the desires of our former self, as he calls it. We cannot be conformed to the desires of our former self. Uh, the end of our story is a good one. I'm better now. Me and Kimmy love each other. We get along way better. I spend far less time burning wood, hay, and stubble. <laughs> Trying to reduce that more and more every day. Anyways, let's continue on with this narrative. So he's doing this, drowning himself in comforts and pleasures, not being alert, not being sober-minded. And then in verse 5, at, the, at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself, and his knees knocked together. <laughs> uh, Mike jokingly said, hey, I'm giving you a real like youth-friendly message next week guy's going to poop his pants. <laughs> his face per- turned pale and his thoughts so terrified that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Verse 7, the king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to those wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the her- uh, third highest position in the kingdom. So he's panicking. His knees are knocking, he soils himself, and he starts screaming, probably very screechy, like, bring in the Chaldeans! Like, freaking out, you know? Like, panic, not like, bring in the Chaldeans! Like, he's freaking out. His knees are knocking. The uh, literal translation of that is actually that his uh, loins were untied, which, (laughs) if your loins have untied for more than 0.0 seconds, contact a doctor. (laughs) But, (laughs) so he freaks out, brings in all these wise men of Babylon, which we remember them from earlier chapters, were unable to do anything for Nebuchadnezzar whatsoever other than tick him off. And they're not going to be able to do anything other than that for Belshazzar either. Spoiler alerts. But he says he's going to give the third highest position in the kingdom to this man. And from this we actually get to see a little piece of who Belshazzar actually is. Because, again, we don't have any biblical record of how he got here. 
And in fact, the this has been a strong point of debate for uh, historians for a lot of years until this century, actually, this century, this was finally cleared, this debate, this issue. This looked like a, um, this looked like a discrepancy, scriptural disc- discrepancy, because the, um, the ancient historian, I don't know how to pronounce his name, I'll be honest, Borosus, something like that, gives us the following order of events. This is what secular knowledge has for the um, order of events. Nebuchadnezzar died after a 43-year uh, reign. Okay, Then his son, who was known as Evil Merodach, that's great great way to be known, ruled for two years when he was assassinated by, by his brother-in-law, also don't know how to pronounce that name, Neraglasar, or something of that nature. Because his rule was arbitrary and licentious, which is, you know, sexually perverse. Nergalasar, mentioned uh, in Jeremiah, ruled for four years until he died a natural death. Surprisingly enough, his son, Laboro Sorkod, I think, only a child and of dismin- uh, di- diminished mental capacity, ruled for only nine months when he was beaten to death by a gang of conspirators. And we think our politics are bad. <laughs> like, my goodness. My word. It's, it's, it's really, it's actually really sad if you think, like, this poor kid of diminished mental capacity should not have been put here. Should not have been put there. Had no reason to be there. Absolutely failed by the people around him. It's really sad. Anyways, the conspirators who uh, beat him to death appointed Nabonidus, one of their gang, to be king. He ruled until Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon. That's the historical record we have. So Nabonidus is the one who historically is recorded as being king when Persian uh, rule took over, okay? Um, He's the one that was in power when the Medes and Persians take over with no mention to anyone named Belshazzar, which is something uh, that, well, yeah, I already said that. We'll skip that that note. Um, Here we go. This was discredited until... Uh, Nabonidus Cylinder, an item called the Nabonidus Cylinder was discovered, which is now on display in the British Museum, and indicates, according to Babylonian records, that Belshazzar became co-regent. He became co-regent in the third year of his reign, 553 B.C., and continued in that capacity till the fall of Babylon in 539 B.C. So he became co-regent with with, uh, Nabonidus. So that's how we come about Belshazzar. He was Nabonidus' oldest son. It's also in records that he was his oldest son, which would make sense. That's why he would be the co-regent. At this time in place, uh, Nabonidus has gone elsewhere. They believe probably to war with the Persians and the Medes who are on their way in. So um, he's probably out. Um, trying to fight with them or fleeing from them, possibly captured at this point. Either way, at this point, again, if your father's out fighting them, you know they're there. And if an entire army is at your gates, there's no way you can't know that. He should be aware of this. So in verse 8, um, all the king's wise men came, which might explain why he was so freaked out. All the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription. Uh, or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar came even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. I don't know what happened because he had already flushed his bowels. I don't know what else happened. He was more terrified. I don't know. But his nobles were bewildered. 
Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. This is sad. (laughs) This queen does not deserve this. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she does. But she hears all this commotion going on from this little frat party that little king is running. And so it's loud enough to where she comes in. She says, may the king live forever, which was, you know, something you're supposed to say. She said, don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. That's kind of false, but okay. She's kind of partly on the right track. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Okay, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the uh, magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners, your own predecessor, the king. Did this because Daniel is the one, uh, Daniel, the one the king named uh, Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. So here you have a queen. Keep in mind, Daniel's still around, so it can't have been that long. If you follow that, I didn't write the number in, I don't remember how many years it is, but if you follow that chronological, chronology of the kings you can figure out how much it's not that long like i think it was like 20 years or something i don't know i won't guess um but it hasn't been that long to the point where people in the kingdom still remember who daniel is daniel still has a reputation the queen is fully aware of what he did for nebuchadnezzar completely fully aware she even just lists it all to him this is exactly what he did and this is why nebuchadnezzar put him in charge of all these um wise men so why doesn't Belshazzar know who he is? Like, why does he know this? Why is he unaware of significant individuals for the kingdom that made significant? Now, we can look at Nebuchadnezzar and say there's some blame there. Probably is. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a whole lot of time after he turned his heart to the Lord. That's a lot to undo. A lot of sin to undo. There's going to be a lot of loose ends. We can look at that. But honestly, we are all responsible before the Lord. We are all responsible when we take a position. He should have known about Daniel. He should have been aware of this. She was aware of it, and she says, he will give you an interpretation. She said God's, obviously she's wrong about that. It's just the one true God. So she's not fully on course with what's right. But regardless, verse 13, then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Um, As I read that, I remember that I didn't tell you guys why it was significant to me that he's given the third highest position in the kingdom rather than the second, like um, has been done in the past. That's because as co-regent, he couldn't give the second because he was the second. So anyways, it's kind of a cool little detail that kind of shows why he was giving that position. Um, so third, directly under him. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. 
Daniel is fully aware of what this is. He knows what this is. He knows this inscription. You'll notice he does not have the same kind of relationship with Belshazzar that he had with Nebuchadnezzar. There is no, I wish this was to your enemies. There was none of that attitude like he had with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to read him the, um, the um, translation but he is, uh, and the explanation, but he is actually um, going to give a little warning right before. We'll see if we catch it. Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. All came from God is what he's saying. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. When his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was disposed, or deposed from his royal throne and his glory taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. He gives him a little quick history lesson. It's not even really history because he knows all these things. In fact, he says that. We'll read verse 22 as well. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You had all the information. You were fully aware of what the consequences for Nebuchadnezzar's sin was. You were aware of everything. And here you are doing the exact same thing. The same thing. Knew everything. Daniel is immediately pointing out that God was in control of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. What he's saying here is that God is sovereign over kingdoms, and God does not care about man's power, God does not care about man's wisdom. It doesn't impress him, none of it does. The people are suffering. God cares about that a whole lot more. Verse 23, Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And, and as you and your nobles, wives and concubines, drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. You have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. He gives him an exact explanation of the issue that he has. He even describes to him what happened at the party. Maybe it was um, relayed to him. I don't know. But obviously, Daniel was not present at the party. They had to go get him. Verse 25, this is the writing that was inscribed. Uh, and I didn't look up the how to read these properly, but I think it's meaning, mini tekel, and parson, or something like that. This is the interpretation of the message. Mini means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
which, by the way, was predicted, prophesied, and you can read about those prophecies in Isaiah 45 and Jeremiah 51, if you're curious. It's really cool. They go into details to the point where it even talks about um, God will um, untie uh, the knots of king of king's loins. Like, it's very, very, very descriptive, very clear. I don't want to read through all that because we don't have time, but... Isaiah 45 and Jeremiah 51, if you want to do a little extra reading, that was 200 years before it happened. So he gives the, um, he gives the interpretation. It's not good. Then verse 29, then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Full stop. An answer was given to him. And what he did was give Daniel the gifts and title that Daniel had already politely declined because Daniel knew what was coming. It's like, well, that's going to be around for about five minutes. <laughs> Third ruler of what? That's great. <laughs> that's what he did. What should he have done? What should he have done? See, this is the beauty of sharing an office with Mike. Um, I get to bounce ideas off of him, and every message I give is pretty much a minor collaboration of some sorts. <laughs> he took me to Acts 16, which I'm going to take you guys to. Acts 16, 26 through 30. I think it's going to be, I think I put a slide in. I think it's up on the screen. Verse 26 says this. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. This was probably to protect his family because if it looked like he died trying to stop the prisoners, it would be better. I don't know. People, people guess at that. Who knows? But he was going to kill himself. Paul called out in a loud voice. Keep in mind, up to this point, this jailer is in an absolute desperate situation, absolutely brought to the end of his rope, humbled to the ground. His one job, his one job was to keep those uh, prisoners where they are. So he's humbled to the ground. But Paul called out in a uh, loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? There are so many times in Scripture where it looks like there is no chance for redemption, there is no chance for being saved, and yet the people cry out, maybe God will hear us, and then he does. And then he does. This was the attitude that he should have said. The moment he was confronted with his sin, and he knew his sin, and the moment he was, that's why he was freaked out when he saw a handwriting on the wall. He was terrified of it because he had guilty conscience. The moment he was confronted with the sin and the moment he, the reality of everything was brought to him, this should have been his attitude. He should have been brought to his knees and went straight to the Lord and said, what must I do to be saved? That's immediately what his attitude should have been. That very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62 that very night, the same night, he is killed. He could have been redeemed. But I do want to ask this one question. What if he was doomed no matter what at this point? 
after all, it had been prophesied, okay? If God had mercy on him and would have made Jeremiah, would that have made Jeremiah and Isaiah false prophets? Perhaps God would never have given the prophecy in the first place, knowing that he would have changed his heart, God has foreknowledge. I think that's the most logical answer, personally, but I want to leave you with this for good measure. This is another option. Maybe he turns his heart to the Lord, and he still dies that night. Luke 23, 39 through 42. Verse 39. Then, the one of the, uh, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly. Because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be there with me in paradise. You will be there with me in paradise. This man did exactly zero things for Jesus. He lived his entire life in sin. He lived his entire life as a thief. He deserved to be on that cross. He deserved the condemnation that was coming down on his head. And he cried out to God, and God said, you'll be there with me in paradise. Sometimes life's consequences still smack us straight in the face, even when we turn our heart to the Lord. And that's still what we should do. Because one of these thieves is going to literally burn for eternity in hell. That broke Jesus' heart, breaks my heart to hear it. And this other one turned his heart to the Lord humbly, and he's going to live for eternity in paradise for doing exactly nothing other than accepting Lord and Jesus, uh, Jesus as his Lord and Savior, accepting his blood as his washing. There is no point in our lives when we have gone too far down the rabbit hole to cry out to the Lord. And regardless of whether that can undo the consequences that our decisions have arisen, that's still what we've got to do. We've got to. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all types of stories you give us. Your words are all good. They are all true. They are all useful. You guide us and lead us even though we don't deserve it, and we thank you so much for it. We thank you that you are a God about redemption and that you desire redemption. Lord, I pray for individuals in my life that I can think of now. I don't want to say any names, but I, Lord, I just pray for them right now that you would redeem them, that you would bring them back to you. You would strengthen um, their resolve to be in your kingdom. I know you can reach absolutely anyone. You've promised it. You've shown it. You've demonstrated it. Reach those hearts, Lord. I ask this in your name. Amen.